Pleistocene period ended in death. This was no ordinary extinction of a vague geological period which fizzled to an uncertain end. This death was catastrophic and all-inclusive. The large animals that had given the name to the period became extinct. Their death marked the end of the era. But how did they die? What caused the extinction of 40 million animals? Frank C. Hibben Welcome to Warfare Advancement and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and I'd like to thank you for listening. So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and start off. I do have a little bit of a correction for something I said at the end of the last episode. This is one I caught myself on the reread, but I wasn't going to just cut it out because of the technical issues I was dealing with last week, and um, it's, it's something small, and I figured it could just do with a correction here at the start of this episode. So I did say, um, basically, that the next few episodes will be getting to the birth of agriculture and kind of the sedentary agriculturalist. Their numbers are going to be going up, while the hunter-gatherers' numbers are going to go down. That is not accurate. Um, typically, Technically speaking, the hunter-gatherers are, are going to stay actually fairly level in their population. It'll, in fact, it'll go up, but it's not going to increase nearly as much as the... Um, the other hominids who begin to lead very different lifestyles. Uh, but that's just a technicality, but it is something I felt like should be corrected. Now this week, um, we're going to kind of take a step back into kind of where we left off in that last episode. Uh, there are, well, there's a major event that I need to cover, and I felt like it deserved its own segment and basically it's going to be most of this episode and that in involves what's known as the Younger Dryas period. Um, I'm also going to go a little bit into um, the kind of the cave art we're seeing and what is typically believed to be going on for humans in terms of kind of religious or spiritual life and I, I do want to go in a little bit more detail about some of those cave paintings in terms of how and where they were made um, that I think kind of, you know, I, I gave descriptions of what they were, but I didn't kind of really connect with the, I, you know, more of the idea of what these things are meant to represent. Um, but that's going to be a little bit later in this episode. We're going to start with the Younger Dryas. It's more important, um, at least for how humans begin to change, um, in my opinion. But, um, and the cave painting stuff, obviously that goes a lot, a lot further back than this, this kind of, uh, last dramatic climate shift. Uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and get on into it. So I know when I was going through our timeline in the last episode, I mentioned that around 20,000 years ago, there was, um, a shift away from the last glacial maximum, or I'm sorry, the, um, the last glacial period of the Ice Age where basically the water levels are beginning to rise. And this started 20,000 years ago. Um, the period of deglaciation began. And by 10,000 years ago, basically they're kind of identical to today's um, water levels. So you mentioned about 120 meters. Uh, higher um, than they were at this uh, sea lies beginning. So again, 20,000 years ago, water levels about 120 meters lower 
than what it is 10,000 years ago. And that period 10,000 ago is very close to what it is today. Now, as we have discussed in earlier episodes, these periods of warming and cooling are not unusual, and they're not always trending entirely in one direction. There are times where the cooling or warming slows down, or they just stop completely, and then it reverses again. This is completely normal and natural. However, around 12,900 years ago, there begins a period that is significantly colder than what it was in the couple thousand years preceding it and the couple of thousand years after it. Glaciers return to most of the northern hemisphere, both in North America, Europe, and Asia, and there is a large drop in animal populations in those same areas, mostly among megafauna who go extinct either in this period or shortly after it ends. This period is known as the Younger Dryas, and that name comes from Dryas octopella, or eight-petal mountain avens, or white dryads, or white dryas. These plants uh, are small eight-petal flowers, as you could probably guess from the name, and they only grow in northerly cold climates or on mountains that have a large amount of snow cover year-round. The reason this period is named after these flowers is that they, their remains, like fossilized remains, have been found in areas where the climate does not suit them. So they surmised that when they grew there, the climate was suitable for them. So that means that these areas were much colder. And it is known as the Younger Dryas because this happened an earlier time, which is known as the Older Dryas. Yes, I know, it's very original naming convention. Uh, but this earlier period only lasted about 200 years, and it was, I believe, around 1,000 years before the Younger Dryas period. So it didn't last very long whereas the Younger Dryas period lasted for about 1,200 years. Now, you may be wondering why this is important. Isn't it completely normal and natural for weather temperatures to adjust over these long periods, especially at the end of an ice age? Uh, yes, you're correct. Uh, but the reason this period stands out is because of the large amount of animals that go extinct or just rapidly lose numbers. And because humans at this time are developmentally modern, uh, 100%. So these humans are noticing first time, you know, for the first time, like a, a devastating climatic impact on their ways of life. Now, it will come as no surprise to any of you that the cause of this event is he very heatedly debated, uh, and there are a few theories. I'm going to lay out three, uh, and they're, I believe they're the most popular by far. Uh, and it's probably likely that some, you know, it's probably likely that all three of these are responsible and 
they kind of fed off each other or one contributed to the other happening. Um, we don't know for sure though. So the first theory and the most popular one is that there was a large freshwater glacier uh, somewhere in the Alaska Manitoba area um, that melted due to the natural um, you know rising temperatures at the end of the last glacial maximum and that this you know caused a basically that this was held back by a large inland ice dam that was just naturally occurring. And once this dam melted, the water flooded out into the ocean very rapidly. Uh, and because it was fresh water, it messed with the, I guess, the, the current um, coming up from, you know, the southern hemisphere up to the north. Fresh water is less dense than salt water, so it basically would stay at the top of the ocean, whereas that warm salt water from the southern hemisphere wouldn't be able to, I guess, evaporate and kind of warm up Europe is kind of the theory for that. Another major theory is that there was a volcanic eruption somewhere in Germany, and that caused a major impact for about 10 or so years and then the lingering effects from all the stuff in the air just kind of slowed down uh, and reversed the heating process at the end of the last um, glacial maximum. The final theory is that there were a number of small comets or uh, meteorites that were hitting the earth at this time and that that caused kind of like a burst effect and you know contributed to dust in the atmosphere things like that and uh, the so evidence kind of supporting this is that around this time period you see a lot of dust and debris kind of in certain areas of the world i think there's a large amount of platinum in the dust layer in South Africa that dates to about that time and of course platinum is exceedingly rare uh, on earth and it's thought you know there could have been a number of small meteorites or comets that were depositing some uh, metals and things like that around that time and all these kind of contributed to the cooling of the earth now obviously it's certainly possible that none of these or all of these are possible. Uh, they don't necessarily rule each other out. Uh, it's possible that a meteorite hit somewhere and it caused that ice dam to break or it's all kind of feeding into each other. Each of these events happened around the same time and it all, you know, created like a big feedback loop. Uh, we, we don't know. Now the humans uh, in North America would have there, there would have been there to see this event, uh, and it would have been terrifying, I'm sure. Um, and of course, the after effects would be felt everywhere, not just in North and South America. Um, and there is a lot of kind of thoughts and theories that the um, that this event caused, you know, kind of a civilizational um, scar, for lack of a better term. Or just like a kind of a deep-seated memory 
Um, there is the possibility that, you know, the rising water levels from this time kind of led to a lot of societies having the flood myth, the universal flood myth. Um, and I, I think that is, you know, that's a, certainly a, a valid theory. Now, there are other situations that could have led to this flood myth, and we'll get to a couple of them going forward, um, specifically uh, the Black Sea formation. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. But to get back to the Younger Dryas event and the megafauna extinctions, in the early 60s, it was extremely popular um, for the theory that basically the megafauna were just out overhunted by humans, that we just hunted them all to just to death. And um, that was very popular for a while. However, I think there's been a lot of pushback on that in recent years. Now, there's no question that we were hunting these animals and eating them or using them for various tools or byproducts. But it's extremely unlikely that basically all the places that these animals are going extinct, which is everywhere in the world, North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, that humans everywhere would have to hunt all of these animals down at the same time just due to food concerns. Because some places it was not nearly as bad as it was in Europe or North America. And there are there is evidence of a few genuses of megafauna going extinct in the Americas a few thousand years before humans showed up. So this was a process that was already underway. There's also the fact that the human population is still probably not that large. I'm thinking we're lucky if there's a million of us worldwide. I don't see how it's possible for even a group of, you know, 60,000 Native Americans or, you know, what would become Native American societies in North and South America are able to kill, you know, tens of millions of animals. Um, it's very likely that climate is the key contributing factor. And there are some animals, you know, that we're also hunting that did not die out. Rabbits, smaller animals, things like that. It, it's probable that basically the megafauna's diet just wasn't, you know, just wasn't available to them. And that didn't help your numbers. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of my read on things. I, I don't, you know, I don't doubt that we contributed, absolutely. But I doubt that we were probably in the top three reasons that these animals were dying out. I think the biggest factors would be the climate being changing so rapidly back and forth i think there was probably a lack of food for them or at least enough food for all of them which dropped their population and then that probably didn't help them when it came to things like breeding above a replacement level um, and then of course you know humans being around you know they, they're going to take their chances with what they can get um, but again, that's just my opinion. That's kind of my theory, and the, just the numbers—the numbers don't seem right to me. At least with the level of technology we would have, which is still, you know, bows and arrows and spear throwers. Um, and you got to remember, hunter-gatherers—they're not 
you know, they're not killing and storing all the time, uh, you know, grasses and grains and wild plants are, you know, still the makeup of most of their diet. All that being said, that is kind of the Younger Dryas theory, what it was, how it happened. So basically a 1200 year event that caused Arctic temperatures over much of North America and Europe and Northern Asia. Now this would have been very rough for the humans living in those areas and probably led to a large shift of the populations as southerly as possible. That's why you see so many human settlements in the south of France, Spain, and probably getting into Italy and the Baltics. Now this is a temporary change. Things eventually do kind of trend back the way they were heading before the Younger Dryas event, whatever it was, whatever it caused, whatever it was caused by, excuse me. It was over and done with by 11,700 years ago. And coincidentally, that is a time where it is noted that the uh, Holocene epoch is said to have begun. So, you know, we're getting out of the Pleistocene and we go into the Holocene epoch. And um, those temperatures and climate are going to be mostly stable until, uh, you know, 20th century, give or take. Now, and about 100 years after that, we do have some more ritual art to get into. And this art is in Shigir, Siberia. It's a five meter tall plank and it's carved with kind of human forms and signs so you know it's kind of a, a very deep idea expression by hunter gatherers and that kind of leads me back into cave art that we talked about in our last couple of episodes um, i didn't really go into too much detail about where these are located so i, I kind of went over what was painted mostly animals or human animal hybrids or animal with human characteristics or humans with animal characteristics however you want to you know break it up all of these arts are done in caves and you know if you go and visit those locations today most of them have some type of electrical light set up but obviously those are not going to be available in the periods of time that they're being created uh, these are going to be done with torchlight or lamplight, and it's not going to be, you know, something that most people would probably have access to unless it was like a special occasion or event. Um, but if you are to view these paintings, I'm sure under lamplight or or torchlight, um, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna probably be much more impressive I would imagine I mean they're already impressive they're incredibly detailed for what they are like you can see like tear ducts on some of the eyes of some of these animals or humans um, but like if you were to view them under torchlight these things would probably look like they were moving um, and there are a couple of theories about this type of art what they're meant to do um, the kind of the the three main ones I've seen, I'll start with the one I think is least likely, is that um, 
some people have kind of identified this as that this was be, um, you know, done by you know young adolescent males who were probably, you know, a big part of the human population at the time. Um, and I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think this kind of goes into the idea that the Venus figures that they have found may have been like kind of pseudo-pornography, for lack of a better term. Um, and it's just them kind of painting the, the beasts that they think of themselves as or they're hunting or the, the female figures that they kind of want to obtain. Um, I don't think that this is probably accurate. And I think there have been some of those analyzed handprints in places like France and Spain that show that um, there are female hands included, you know, in kind of these outlines. So it's not just males doing this. I think we have pretty definitive proof that it is both male and female. The other uh, ideas that I've kind of noticed a lot in a lot of the literature is the idea that um, these are kind of being painted with the anticipation of finding these animals, that you're kind of draw out these animals you're, you're drawing them so that you can face them or to kind of show you the dangers that you might have to face when you're when you're facing these animals and trying to overcome them in you know the hunt and then there's another theory um, that's fairly popular it's that um, these and it's based on actually I think ethnographic kind of studies of modern day or at least contemporary hunter-gatherer societies uh, places like the Khoisan or in India that still have people that live this lifestyle, Australia as well. Um, and basically what they would do, they would have similar things where like um, their shamans or holy men would basically go into a cave, you know, in the dark, and they would enter into a trance either through meditation, like, you know, um, fasting, or possibly with psychotropics or some type of fermented drink and then just kind of paint the images from these these visions, this trance that they get with kind of uh, the hope of drawing out um, the animal's power uh, that they're drawing, kind of draw the animal spirit um, from some type of uh, netherworld. Of course, caves, even in later societies, are kind of associated with gods of the dead that basically the, the spirit world is behind the rock, uh, that these are, you know, kind of uh, meeting points between the living world and the spirit world. And um, anyway, that's the those are the major theories that we have about this type of cave art. Um, and I think that's interesting. I just want to go a little bit more detail. And uh, specifically because, uh, of course, the last thing I mentioned, that Shigir, Siberia, those wooden um, forms, um, shaman is actually probably from a Siberian language, Ivanki, um, which is actually carried over to a couple of other languages. I think um, their word for it is Saman. And the Russians use basically the same word. It's just a slightly different pronunciation on both the S and the A. Um, but it's also possible that it could be like a Manchu language or um, possibly um, just a Tungus, I think is the name of the, the language. Um, 
and it's it's also kind of similar to um, there's a Sanskrit word called sramana, which might go into a future kind of study of um, Indo-European languages. But uh, we'll, we'll hold on to hold off on that for now. We got a ways to go before we get to those people. Um, but yeah, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Um, it's uh, not quite as long as the last one. I just these were a couple of things I wanted to dive into before we kind of get to um, kind of get to the end of our well, I guess the midway point sort of of our prehistory. Um, we still got a little ways to go before we get to writing and all that kind of stuff and, you know, a much clearer archaeological record. But I think, um, we, next episode we're going to go into, um, kind of the cultivation of wild barley and oats in, um, the Southwest Asia, uh, Anatolia, those kind of areas. And we'll probably start going into some of the kind of the pseudo cultures, or um, I guess the the cultures of um, specifically different types of tool or pot making, because these are kind of the first first ones I feel comfortable kind of introducing as independent or at least um, separate peoples, um, kind of with their own societies. Uh, they're still all hunter gatherers, basically, but we're gonna we're gonna be moving away from that slowly but surely, uh, at least in most of the world. Um, there are, of course, still going to be holdouts, as I said at the start of the episode. Hunter gatherers aren't going away; they're going to hang around. It's just they're not going to explode in terms of population like the rest of humanity is. But yeah, uh, again, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, please like and. Um, rate the podcast if you can on any of the services you listen to. Uh, I again have my Twitter set up and I include the link to that account if you use Twitter. Uh, and I'm just going to be basically using that to answer any questions. Of course, you can still reach me at my email or at revpod at gmail.com. That's W A R A D R E V P O D at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.